First Samuel chapter eight, verses four through 22. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing, dis- uh, but the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves." And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. Thank you, Jason. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we ask for a generous miracle of hearing, God, that you would open by your Holy Spirit our hearts to hear your word, Lord God. Lord, we pray that you would elevate your word in our ears and in our hearts to be more than just ink on a page, Lord, but it would be the tool that the Holy Spirit uses to search us out and to, and to find out who we really are. Not because he doesn't know, but because so often we're blinded to that fact. And so, Lord, I also ask that you would enable me this morning, God, as one who is so insecure, so incapable of so many things, Lord, I pray that you would make me able to to righteously and to honorably handle your word, Lord God, to do it uh, with sobriety and earnestness, Lord God, that your people would hear 
and that they would be changed, Lord. I pray that you would give me ability I don't have, Lord, and that you would look on my weakness and you would grant the grace that is necessary to handle your word properly. And Lord, while we're praying, I just want to lift up all the sick of Northridge Life Church, Lord. I want to especially lift up Gene Fleener this morning, God, as he's in the hospital and, Lord, uh, facing some questions about the future. Lord, I pray that you would just extend your hand to him and bring complete and total healing to his body, Lord, and that you would, um, God, just help him to have a vision of you and to experience your grace. Lord, I pray for uh, Jossie, Lord, with COVID and, and those of the others who, who may have COVID, Lord, I pray that you would just extend your grace to all of them, Lord God. And, and Father, we pray that you would bring this pandemic quickly to an end, bring our church back together. Let us have a great reunion and homecoming. Father, we thank you for all that you're doing. Lord, I do thank you for everyone who's watching this morning online. And pray that they would have the blessing of fellowship even without being able to be here, Lord God. And we thank you for all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So you may have thought that I forgot my place or I lost my place, but we're actually returning to a series that we started, I believe, in October. It was a... And when we started it, and um, we actually had COVID go through our house, and then other things happened, and then we came upon the holidays, and Pastor Dave preached a four-week service, uh, or series of services, and so we had several things that kind of lined up against us to finish this series, but I am determined to finish this series. So uh, the series, if you have forgotten, is one in which we're looking at the roles of the prophet, the priest, and the king in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. Testament. And uh, in correspondence with our conviction, we are showing then how Jesus Christ perfectly fulfilled all three roles. That Jesus Christ is the perfect prophet for the church. That Jesus Christ is the absolute mediating priest for the church. And that Jesus, as we will see in the next couple of weeks, is the king of everything. And so that's what we're doing. Um, And so we're going to look today at the role of the king, especially in Israel's history in the Old Testament. The first thing you have to understand is that when Israel became a nation at the foot of Mount Sinai, right before the Ten Commandments were handed and God entered, handed down and God entered into covenant with them, that they had no king but God himself. No one wore the crown of Israel. There was no king. It was on the basis of God's nearness to his people that he gave them no commandment whatsoever to crown an earthly sovereign for their nation. In Deuteronomy 4.7, this is what uh, the, the people say about themselves or what Moses says about the people. He says, For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us, Whenever we call upon him. This was not the norm that God would approach a single nation like he did the people of Israel. When God opened the Red Sea for them to walk through it on dry ground and and then used that same Red Sea to drown Pharaoh's army, the people came out on the other side singing. And this is what they were singing. If you look at this in, in Exodus 15, the last line of their song says this, The Lord will reign forever and ever. What they are saying in that simple passage is that God is our king. So at the the very beginning, 
Israel was a true theocracy. Now you may be familiar with terms like monarchy and democracy as different types of government. A theocracy is a government that is directly ruled by God. Now while God still, even in the time of his direct rule, he still communicated his will through prophets like Moses and he still gave the people a priesthood to mediate for them and to offer sacrifices, God alone was their absolute ruling king. One of the titles that we uh, commonly associate with God is the title Lord. It comes from, there's two different words usually in, in most of your English Bibles that are translated Lord from the Hebrew. One is Yahweh, which uh, is usually in all caps, L-O-R-D in all caps. And, and that is the, the representation of what, they, what was known as the name, I am that I am. But, but more importantly, Adonai which is the other word translated as Lord. It's capital L, lowercase o-r-d in most of your Bibles. That word is significant because it means when we apply that to Jesus or to God or, or to the Holy Spirit, it means ruler or master or even, as uncomfortable this might make us in our society, it even means owner. God is clearly stating, even by accepting that title, his intention to be completely in charge. He never intended for his authority over his people to ever be in question. But here's the good part. That may sound harsh and oppressive and, and you may prefer a God that, that just is represented by little stickers that say God loves you and t-shirts and posters of that kind of thing. But here's the good part about the absolute authority of God. Let me tell you how God rules. God never, like earthly rulers, like tyrants, God never oppresses us with his rule. I hope you heard me. God never oppresses us with his rule. Instead, what God does with his rule is he blesses us. He causes us to flourish as we submit to his lordship. As we bow our knee to his will and his plan and we say, you're in charge, I'm not. Then a blessing is released in our life. Flourishing happens in our life. I love what, also in Exodus, the, the very chapter before the Ten Commandments are handed down, this is what God says to his people. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you. Listen to the, 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 the tender love of this. How I bore you on eagle's wings and I brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. Now, let me break that down for you. In that beautiful passage, we have a picture of the way God loves his people. He says this, he says, you shall be my treasured possession. That you, as you are, belong to God, this of course was in the old covenant, but much more in the new covenant. As you belong to God, you are his treasured possession. God looks at you and, and his heart is delighted that he, that you belong to him. But where you also must understand that, that, you know, what you hear oftentimes out in the world, well, we're all God's children. Well, we're not. You, who have believed in His name, are God's 
treasured possession. But as believers in His name, you are His possession. Are you tracking with me? You are not, you are not liber- uh, liberated in the, in the love of God to live however you want to live. You are His possession. Everybody awake this morning, pinch your neighbor really hard. Make sure they're hearing this. This is good stuff. Thank you, Shay. I appreciate that. One of you obeyed. Just kidding. Um, we are nevertheless His and not our own. And, and the right, I love this passage that we just read, because His right to call us His own is made clear on this basis. The earth, all the earth, He says, is mine. Can you point to a single thing that God does not own? Can I help supply the answer? No, you cannot. Everything belongs to God. So, so let's, let's regroup here. Let's sum up an offer of relationship like none other ever offered with the Almighty, with, with God Himself was made to Israel. But if you know anything about the Old Testament, you'll know this. Even though this offer of unique relationship was made to, uh, from God to Israel, they abandoned that privilege. And they soon began to pursue other gods. And, and not just other gods, but gods of the nations that the Lord had literally displaced before them. So Moses was a great leader, and, and he, he had Joshua who succeeded him, a great leader. But both of them died. And immediately after Joshua dies, at the end of the book of Joshua, we enter the book of Judges, and we see this cycle that goes, it, it, it repeats over and over and over. The people, after Joshua's death, begin to tamper with idolatry and then engage in idolatry. And soon, because of their idolatry, God sends judgment on them, usually in the form of some oppressing nation or, or some oppressing king coming against them. And then, uh, which w- was the intention all along, they repent of that idolatry and God brings deliverance. God, in His mercy sends judges to deliver them from their oppressors over and over and over again. But this was not the best solution. Why? Because even many of the judges themselves were not fully devoted to God. You look at Samson. Samson was a train wreck. He was one of the judges. He was a train wreck. He had a, an eye for the ladies and he was a fool in things that he, the secrets that he shared. And he, he died uh, uh, having to pull a temple down on himself after he'd been blinded by his enemies. Gideon returned to idol worship. So these judges were not model citizens in the kingdom of God. So at the end of this period of judges, God raises up another judge. And he was also, this judge was also a prophet, and he was somewhat of a lay priest. In other words, he wasn't officially in the priestly line, but he kind of, because of the corruption in the priestly line, he kind of served in that capacity. And his name was Samuel. Now, Samuel is an incredible character. If you, if you want to know more about Samuel, read about, read about him in the first few chapters of 1 Samuel. The first thing we know about Samuel is that he was miraculously born. His mother was barren. She prayed for a son. Samuel was born. He was miraculously born. He was absolutely wholly devoted to God, unlike some of the judges that preceded him. And he was revered by the people. When Samuel spoke, the people listened 
He judged Israel all of his days and likely he assumed that the ministry of the judges would continue to help Israel, that God would raise up more judges after his death. But tragically, his sons, Samuel's sons, who should have succeeded him were wicked, wicked men. The Bible says that they turned aside after gain. In other words, they cared more about the people's money than the people's souls. They took bribes, the Bible tells us, and they perverted justice. And the people looking at this were disgusted, as they should have been, and they demanded change, which they shouldn't have done. What they should have done is look to the God of their fathers and say, You be our king. Help us to walk in your ways so that you can be our king. But they didn't do that. They wanted a king. Now listen to the reason they wanted a king. So that they could be like all the other nations. Now you may, when Jason read that part of the scripture, you may have just read right over it. But I want you to understand what it's saying there. God has taken them strangers, aliens in the land, and has given them the land over the the course of a few centuries. He's given them the land. He has miraculously defeated all of their enemies before them. He's displaced them, all the, 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 the peoples and the gods that they worshiped. He just absolutely uprooted and displaced them. And it is those people that they come to Samuel and said, make us like them. Now, If you're a football fan, you don't want to be like the losing team, right? You want to be like the winning team. And they're saying, make us like the losing team. These are the nations that were rejected by God. And so you can imagine how brokenhearted Samuel was as he wondered how the people could ask for someone better than the God who had saved them from Egypt, who'd split the Red Sea, who rained down bread from heaven for them to eat, who caused water to flow out of a rock so they'd have something to drink. How could they reject the one who brought them into the promised land, who defeated all of their enemies before them, and had given them a lasting inheritance? And they said, make us like the other nations and Samuel prayed about what they were requesting and the Lord answered with these words he said they have not rejected you Samuel it wasn't the ministry of the judges that they were rejecting they have rejected me from being king over them and he told Samuel to warn them about their desired king and as is so often the case, I imagine that some of you in this room, as, my, as I myself have, have experienced this. But, but as is so often the case, what they wanted and what they would get would be two vastly different realities. Has anybody ever experienced that? Something that you desired, something you pursued, something you chased after. And when you got it, it wasn't exactly what you hoped for. Samuel told them that their king would be oppressive, that he would take their children to fight in his wars, that they would till his ground, and that they would work in his factories, and they would be servants in his palaces, and that he would just help himself to their crops and their livestock. And ultimately, Samuel warned the people, you shall be his slaves. Well, sign me up. That doesn't sound too attractive, does it? But the people stuffed their fingers in their ears and they demanded a king even more loudly. And so God 
gave them their desire. Now let me ask you, some of you have read the story, how do you think that went? Well, let me tell you. Their first king was a guy named Saul. From the day of his coronation, he proved to be an insecure basket case. And worse than that, he lacked the respect of the people. In fact, he had to make a threat against the people to get them to respect him. Later, he blatantly disobeyed God's instructions on a couple of occasions. And when God raised up a giant killing champion for Israel named David, perhaps you've heard of him, Saul is so jealous of David that he begins a decade-long terror campaign against him to kill him. Near the end of, of Saul's story, he's dabbling in witchcraft and the occult. And eventually, in a time of national defeat by their enemies, in a time of total disgrace for the nation of Israel, Saul commits suicide, taking his own life. The next king after Saul was David. And in the history of Israel, David is a bright, shining light to this day. David ruled in faithfulness, and the Bible tells us that he followed God with his whole heart. But most of you who know the story of David know this. David was not perfect. David famously committed adultery. David famously murdered the husband of the woman he committed adultery with. His children were absolutely out of control. Once in the end of his story, when he counted the people, which it takes too long to explain here, but that was forbidden by God. He he'd made this census and he counted them. And because he disobeyed God in this thing, a deadly plague from God resulted in which 70,000 of his subjects were wiped out. Next on the throne was David's son Solomon. David, like Solomon, I mean, like David rather, Solomon was blessed by God. He was a man who was gifted with tremendous wisdom in an answer to prayer that he'd made to God. And he was the one who, who built a magnificent temple for God. But Solomon's life is corrupted by his sexual hang-ups. They were his undoing. And Solomon had 700 wives and 300 mistresses. And many of those mistresses and wives he took from foreign lands and, and they seduced his heart to worship their false idols. Solomon's son Rehoboam succeeded him and he was a man of arrogance and foolishness which led to David's vast kingdom, his strong and mighty kingdom being divided and locked in decades of civil war in Rehoboam's lifetime. And the kingdom was never restored to its former glory ever again. The kings of Israel that resulted, the northern kingdom, the rebellious kingdom, the northern kingdom were all, every single one of them that's listed in history, were all desperately wicked. Horrible, desperately wicked, idolatrous, child-sacrificing people. They were terrible. The kings of Judah, the southern kingdom, the original kingdom, fared just a little bit better. In their history, they have good kings and they had evil kings. But even the best of their kings failed in some tragic way. It, it's the case with every one of their so-called good kings. Like the prophets and the priests, they fell very short of God's perfect rule over his beloved people. So how does that story end? The northern kingdom 
The rebellious kingdom fell to Assyria in 722 B.C. The ten tribes that comprised the nation of Israel were dispersed within, within the other nations and no one knows exactly what became of them or where they are to this day. They've been just dispersed into, into human history. The kingdom of Judah was taken into exile in Babylon in 587 B.C. because of their idolatry as a punishment from God. And, and they remained there being punished by God for 70 years. So here's the point. You guys all know a lot about Israel's history with kings. Here's the point. There's two things we should learn from our text this morning. And from the demand of God's people to be ruled by a king who is like the other nations. And the first thing we have to learn is the folly or the foolishness of trusting ourselves, trusting our lives in the present, or even our futures to anything but God's rule. The only thing that we should entrust ourselves to, our present circumstances to, our futures to, is the benevolent, merciful rule of Almighty God. See, it's easy for us, especially those of us who grew up in a fairly evangelical America, Christian America, it's easy for us to look at the Jews in the age of the judges and shake their, our heads at their foolishness. And their foolishness for demanding a king to rule them. But that, on our part, is very short-sighted. Why would I say that? It's short-sighted because as you sit there listening, as you're watching online, as I'm saying these words, it applies to myself as well. Every single one of us has been called to forsake everything we have. Everything we have and all that we trust in. And to trust alone in God's unfailing promise to be everything we need. To be our salvation. To be our defender. To be our hope and to be our supply. To be literally our king. And some of you might hear me say something like that and you might be tempted to say something where on the spectrum between amen, good preaching, and others of the end of the spectrum. You might be tempted to be even a little offended and say, hey, I have no king but God. But I want to ask you in the quietness of your seat, in the quietness of your home online, not what you theoretically look to, but in the, when the chips are down, what do you practically look to for strength, for comfort, for provision? Let me just give you a couple of things that we ask to rule our lives. The first one in our culture would be money. But can I suggest to you that money is a lousy king? It's a terrible king. Why would I say that? Because you can have all kinds of money and it can be lost. It can be stolen. It can be cut off at the source when you lose your job, when your investments go south. And that can happen to you with no warning whatsoever. But more importantly, if you want to make money your king, who in this life can be rich enough to buy their way out of God's holy judgment on the last day? Not a single one of us. Money will be absolutely worthless on that day, no matter how much of it you have. So let's look at something else. What about power? 
See, power is great. You can do a lot of things with power. But power is only great until you come face to face with somebody that has more of it. And you always will. You'll always find somebody that is stronger, smarter, better looking, whatever it is, more influential. You'll always find somebody that has more than what you have. Isaiah is illustrating this principle about the the weakness of power in Isaiah 40, 30. When he says, even youths, those with the most strength, the most power, shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted. Power is always at some point fully expended or completely superseded by the power of another. Power is a terrible king. What about fame or influence? This is what Isaiah says about that in the same chapter. He says, all flesh is grass. Now what is he talking about there? He's talking about life and and the, the, the fragility of our lives. He says, all flesh is grass. Its beauty is like the flower of the field. Your fame, your influence is like the flower of the field. Now, in what way? He tells us in verse 7, the grass withers. The flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers. The flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. What about wisdom? Get an education. Be smarter than the next guy. But what I want to tell you about wisdom, it's pretty easy. One generation's wisdom proves to be foolishness in the next. Can I, can I prove this to you? If that weren't true, if, if it weren't true that the wisdom of a previous generation proves to be foolishness in the next, the next time you go for an annual checkup to your doctor and you tell him you have this pain or this cough or whatever, he'll pull out a slimy leech and stick it on you to bleed the disease out of you. That's what doctors used to do. Sounds kind of foolish now, doesn't it? But that's what they used to do because that was the wisdom of their generation. I remember when I was a kid, my dad bought a a VHS videotape of of commercials from the 50s and 60s that were on the the pioneering days of television. And one of my favorite, and you probably have seen this one because it's gotten a lot of attention, especially in recent years, is is a a, 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 a commercial for Philip Morris cigarettes. And the spokesman on the the, uh, commercial starts out something like this. As a doctor, I enjoy the health benefits of a Philip Morris cigarette. The foolishness, the wisdom of one generation becomes the foolishness of the next, correct? This is what Paul says to us. He says, for the wisdom of this world is folly with God. That's foolishness with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile that they're meaningless, that they're empty. And can I suggest to you one more sovereign? Most of us, if we directly avoid the temptation to money, to power, to fame, to wisdom, if we avoid the temptation to any of those things, every one of us at some point in our life, and if I were being honest, most days in our lives, wake up, look in the mirror, and feel at some place in our heart we are beholding our king. Is that right? 
Is that fair? We look and we say, we think about the demands that are placed on us by different people. And it rises sometimes anger or jealousy or envy within us because we want to be in charge. We want to be in control. We want to be the tyrant over not only our own lives, but over everybody else's. And that never works because they want the same thing. That's why Jesus said that the greatest among you... And can I just point out before I finish that statement, that the one who was speaking was the greatest among them? That there was no one greater than Jesus who was speaking. And he said, the greatest among you will be the servant of all. Because when, when you take the place of a servant, you have a completely different agenda than those who are just trying to build their own kingdom and establish their own empires. That's what makes it so great. But if you hear all this, and you see the folly of all those things, if you're afraid to, trace, to, to place your trust in Jesus today, to place your trust in God today, as your king, as your only sovereign, remember, as I said earlier, that God is not a tyrant. He doesn't rule with whips and armies, but he rules by promises to the hungry, promises to the thirsty, promises to the brokenhearted and the rejected. He, he, he has promises for the confused, promises to the miserable. He promises all who believe in Him, who put their trust in Him, He promises them abundant life. Now let me point out that money, power, fame, influence, wisdom, they all make similar promises. All of them promise abundant life. But as I hopefully have demonstrated and proven, those other things, money, power, fame, influence, wisdom, cannot deliver on that promise. They are all fraught with peril. They're all minefields that you have to navigate your way through. But when Jesus makes a promise of abundant life, the Bible tells us that he is not a man that he could lie. All those things promise abundant life. Yet there are generations and generations and generations who have trusted Christ to be their king even to the point of their own bloody death. And they found him, even at the very end, to be benevolent and faithful to his word, both in this life and in the one to come. You can't beat that deal. So I told you there were two things you need to learn. Second thing, we should learn that in spite of our desire to be ruled by things as silly as money and power, God has promised to return those who trust in Him to all the benefits of His direct rule. All the promises that He made to people who would submit to His lordship for flourishing, He has promised to to return us to that rule. His rule in our life does not begin when we plant you six feet under. It doesn't begin when Gabriel blows his horn. His rule in your life begins when we trust in Christ. And here's the good part. It lasts forever without end, ever. And that's the greatest benefit of Christ's kingship, of his lordship, is that he promises us everlasting, perfect, overflowing, abundant life. 
When David was king, let me just kind of illustrate like this. When David was king, he wanted to build God a house. What he means by that is he wanted to build him a temple. When the people came out of the wilderness, the the ark of God, the the golden box that held the Ten Commandments, uh, where God's presence resided over, from the time they came out of the wilderness, it it was in a tent. It was a nice tent, but it was still a tent nonetheless. And David, his kingdom is flourishing, and he says, I'm going to build a temple for God. But but interestingly enough, God shocked David with his reply to this idea. You would think God would say, what a, what, a, what a great thing that you've planned, David. Go get it. But this is what God said to David. Listen carefully to these words. Read them along with me on the screen. I will give you... You're going to do something for me, David? Listen, I'm going to give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, I love this passage. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. You want to make me a house? Uh Uh-uh. I'm going to make you a house, David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you and your house, listen to this carefully, and your house, David, And your kingdom, David, shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne, David, shall be established forever. Now that promise was first fulfilled in Solomon. Who built the temple that David desired to build. But when Solomon sinned, as the the passage says, God disciplined him. He disciplined him by, in in his son's generation, having the kingdom torn in two. He disciplined all of the kings that came after him that, uh, so that when, uh, the, you know, their iniquity reached the fullness of its cup, that they were thrown into exile. But here's what I want you to see. That another king came. Another king came later down the line and he was also disciplined, but not for his iniquity. He was disciplined for the iniquity with the rod of men. He was disciplined for the iniquity of all those previous kings. Oh, and I should also tuck in there for your iniquity and for my iniquity. Let's get to that. So... Solomon dies. All of the heirs of David die. The kingdom went into exile and no kings were established when they returned from exile. But 500 years after that exile, this baby is born in a manger who, guess what? Ta-da! Was a descendant of David. While Solomon built a physical temple for God to dwell in, this baby proved that he was Israel's long-awaited Messiah, her Savior, her Deliverer, who, her King, who would defeat all her enemies and who would fulfill the ancient prophecy by making a dwelling place for God for all who believe. It was Jesus who would fulfill the prophecy and build a house for God so that you could dwell in it. So that he would be your God and you would be his people. Jesus is the king who is not only David's heir, but he's the king who has ascended to, to his throne. 
where he will be forever and ever. He rules even now at this very moment from heaven. And he will soon return to reign from that throne on earth forever, placing all of his enemies under his feet. And for those who trust in him in this very moment, no matter how bleak it looks outside, he still rules with promises and not with oppression. So my question for you today is what is keeping you from believing in him today? Perhaps you have something else that you want to rule your life so that you can be just like everyone else. The last thing you want to be like is people who you think are weird or religious. But what will that gain you? If you choose to let other things rule you, how Will you ever overcome your feelings of guilt? How will you know that your sins are forgiven? Do you want to entrust yourself this morning to your best thinking? Well, let's be honest with ourselves. Be honest with yourself. I'll be honest with myself if we can even dare to. How often has your best thinking failed you? How often... Has your wisdom and your best laid plans fallen like a house of cards? Well, maybe your fear is this. What if Christ doesn't accept me? The Bible promises this, that he will never cast aside anyone who comes to him. What a great promise. What if I can't be good enough to be a Christian? Well, let me help you out with that. I promise you, you cannot. You can't be enough to be a Christian. But here's the point. If you, if, if that's your first question, you're missing the point. God's love has, to you, has never been based on your goodness or your morality. Never. It's been based on Christ's perfection and His love for you. Jesus lived the life that we never could have lived. And He died the death that we deserved to die. And he did it for you to make you into what you could never be on your own. All you have to do to be accepted into his kingdom, to become one of his subjects, is to believe that. So another question I have for you this morning, is there any reason why you shouldn't place your trust in the king of kings today? Is there any reason at all? He's waiting for you with open arms to receive you, to transform you, and to bless you far beyond what you could ever have imagined. Now, he doesn't promise. When I say bless you beyond what you could imagine, I am not promising you that Jesus will give you a perfect life. But what he will give you, and I can promise you this, is that he'll give you a life of peace for your storms. And he'll give you a life of power for your weakness. And he'll give you forgiveness for the things of which you are ashamed. He promises even to deliver you. This is the bonus. He promises even to deliver you from the power of death forever. Jesus says, the one who believes in me will never die. John chapter 11. So this morning I declare over you that Jesus is king. And that Jesus will be king forever. Now we're going to explore that in greater detail next week. But I want to tell you this. No matter where you are with God, 
You only have the right only in this life. I mean, your natural, breathing, heart-beating life, you only have the right to reject him as king in this life. But the Bible's promise is this, that there is a day coming when the right to resist his kingship and your acknowledgement of it and your submission to it will be removed. Philippians 2 says this, God has highly exalted him, him being Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Now listen, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Now how many knees are going to bow? And every tongue confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord. That means king to the glory of God the Father. How many tongues are going to confess? You may confess in eternal life or you may confess in eternal torment. But the promise of scripture is that you will confess the kingship, the lordship, the authority and the rule, the sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, our hearts right now are so stubborn. Lord, I, I, I would much rather, too often, way more often than I would like to admit, would rather say with the enemy in Isaiah 14 that I will ascend to the heavens and I will be like God than to say I bow my knee in humble submission to you. And God, we all struggle with that. Lord, we all wrestle with desires for our own greatness and for our own rule and to have no one's yoke placed upon our neck. But Lord, I thank you that though you demand that we submit to your kingship, you say that your burden is easy, your yoke is easy, and your burden is light, oh God. Because your burden that you place upon our back is filled with grace. It's filled with mercy and forgiveness and love. Your yoke, Lord, to which we are yoked, we look over and we find that we're yoked to you, Lord God. That we're walking through the trials and the, the trouble of this life with the King who we serve. And so God, we thank you for that. Lord, I pray that you would make our hearts willing to be ruled by you. Holy Spirit, I've done what I could. I've given me the word, I've given them the word that I believe you gave me. And so, Lord, I ask for myself, I ask for all of them, God, that you would not let it die a quick death, but you would allow meditation to happen. Hard questions to be posed about how we are submitting to your lordship. Hard questions about what we are asking to rule us. Money, power, fame, even our own egos, Lord. We, we pray that you would just help us to see that clearly. To repent, as Pastor David said at the very beginning of this service. And to turn in humble submission as subjects of the eternal King who lives forever. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you would stand and place your hands in a receiving position.
I want to pronounce a benediction over you. This is what Paul writes to Timothy. He says, To the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. You are dismissed.